Reggie Horn, and I'm one of the pastors, uh, one of the elders here at Redemption. And it is a um, pleasure and a joy and a part of God's grace that we can gather together this morning. Uh, if we think about the events over just the last couple of days, lots of people in Texas this morning who aren't able to gather together to worship. Um, and so it's, it's a joy and a privilege for us to be able to be here together. So I want to welcome you and thank you for being here. This morning, uh, we're starting a new series uh, so for the next several weeks, a um, little while, we'll be going through the book of First Peter. And so we're starting a series called Set Apart, which you can see the graphic up there on the screen. Um, and this morning, we're going to be looking specifically at First Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And it may seem like, because we're only dealing with the first two verses, that it's going to go pretty quick. But it's not. We'll get out of here about 4 p.m. You guys good with that? Um, there's quite a lot in the first two verses of Peter, and uh, we could spend weeks and weeks dealing with them, um, but, but we're going to look at them for just a little while this morning. Um, so anyway, this is what we've written about the series, and um, I have to give props to Kate, who edited this for us. So let me just read you what this series is about, and then I'll pray for us, and then we'll move on for there. Uh, the first, leader, first letter of Peter reminds us that as believers... We have been set apart from this world and set apart for God through the person and work of Jesus. This place is not our home. Written to the elect exiles of the dispersion, 1 Peter explores the unique tension of living as sojourners in a foreign land. When we experience suffering and discomfort, it's natural for us to turn inward and focus on ourselves. However, Peter calls us to turn to God and focus on him. As God's people... We are set apart to carry and proclaim Jesus back into the darkness from which we were rescued. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you that he has saved us and done something for us that we could never do for ourselves. And God, because of that, because of your work in our lives, God, you get to give us, you have the right and the privilege to give us an identity. And God, we thank you for that identity. We thank you that it comes from you and you alone. Holy Father, I pray over the next few minutes as we look at the beginning of 1 Peter that you would use me to simply proclaim your word. God, I recognize that my words are of little importance. But God, your words are of utmost importance. And so God, I pray that we would hear from you in this place, that Jesus would be lifted high, and that we would be drawn to you because of Jesus. God, we ask all this in the name of your Son. Amen. If I were to ask you a question, if I were to say, tell me who you are, who are you, what would your response be? Would you respond with your name? Would you respond with your occupation or your job, what you do on a daily basis, and say, I am a nurse, I am a teacher, whatever it might be? Would your response be based on some role that you have? Would you say, I'm a parent, I'm a spouse, I'm a single person, I'm a brother, a sister, a child, whatever, wherever you find yourself? Would would it be based on your education? Would you say, I'm doctor so-and-so? Would your identity be based on your race? Or would your identity be based on your sexuality? Or would your identity be based on your gender? Where and how? Would you identify yourself if I were to say, who are you? Right over the past few years in our society and culture, on a large scale, both 
um, uh, in all areas of life, including entertainment, our society has really sort of been diving into examining the issues of identity. Who am I? Who are we? Right, if we take a step back and just look at the big picture over the last few years, these are just a few examples, right? This is by no means exhaustive. But if we take a step back and just look at the big picture over the last few years, issues of identity related to race, sexuality, ethnicity, gender, and so forth are really being examined and thought about all over the place. We've um, seen Bruce Jenner become Caitlyn Jenner. We've seen a TV show follow that on Amazon. It's all about uh, a parent transitioning to a new gender. We've seen TV shows like Blackish, which is an incredibly funny TV show and a great TV show, um, quite frankly. Um, movies like Get Out that have brought into focus an examination of race in our culture. We've seen the end of the presidential term of America's first African-American president. And we've seen the beginning of the term of a president that is in like unlike any we've ever seen before, where race is right back in the center of our society. We've seen the events of Charlottesville just a couple of weeks ago where the sin of racism reared its ugly head over and over and over. And since then, the, um, the conversation on social media regarding um, statues and Confederate memorials and, and things like that has just been out of control. It's been crazy. Just a couple of years ago, the Supreme Court legalized gay marriage, right? These issues of identity, how we define ourselves, what we're about, are really at the center of our society right now. They really are. And even though we may not realize how central they are or how much they play into our identity and how we define ourselves, they really do. It's a big deal to examine these things and talk about them. But here's the weird thing about Western culture, right? We, we live in a Western society. And here's the weird thing. It's, it's different than it's ever been before, and it's different than a lot of places around the world. But in our society, we really get to define our own identity. We get to make it up. We get to say, I am this or I am that. We get to choose our jobs. We get to choose our religion. We get to choose these days our gender. We get to choose our sexuality. We get to choose our spouses. Like all of these things, we get to go out and find ourselves. We get to go say, this is who I am. I'm going to go find myself, and this is how I'm going to identify myself. But what Peter does at the very beginning of the book of First Peter, right out of the box, what Peter does is establish the fact that God has given his people an identity that supersedes everything else. Right out of the box, Peter goes straight to identity. Regardless of how we might identify ourselves, regardless of who we might say that we are, God has something to say about who we are. God has something to say about our identity. And First Peter gets right to it. And I want you to stay with me here for a minute because we're going to dive into 1 Peter and I want you to hang with me because it's incredibly important. Not only am, am what I'm going to do this morning is examine 1 Peter 1 and 2, I'm really setting the stage for the next few weeks and months to come as we dive into 1 Peter over and over and over. So hang with me. 1 Peter, verses 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, 
verses 1 and 2. I'll read them. I think they'll be up there as well. This is what it says. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who were elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to examine several things in these first two verses. I'm going to talk about the cultural context for a minute that Peter um, was writing into when he wrote this book. And then I'm going to just sort of tie it all up for us at the end. But just a couple of things to note about these verses. First, the Peter writing here is the Peter that was one of the 12 apostles appointed by Jesus, right? We know that. He spent several years with Jesus, and he was an eyewitness of Jesus' life and Jesus' ministry. He had incredible successes as a follower of Jesus. He, he walked on water with Jesus, right? When Jesus said, who do people say that I am? Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He had these incredible successes. He was with Jesus at the transfiguration. But Peter had incredible failures as well. At the crucifixion, Peter denied Jesus three times and walked away and said, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not with that guy. We see later in the New Testament that Paul has to call Peter out and say, Peter, you're being legalistic. You're not following the gospel, man. He had some incredible failures. And so when we read 1 Peter, we are listening to a man who saw Jesus, talked to him, walked on water with him, denied knowing him, watched him die, met up with him after the resurrection, was eventually commissioned by Jesus to feed and shepherd the flock, and then failed at it. And then he wrote 1 Peter. And the fact that 1 Peter exists is an incredible example of grace at all. 2,000 years later, the fact that we're reading something that Peter wrote and that it is incredibly relevant to this day and age is amazing. It's a testament to God's grace in the life of Peter. And so when Peter identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus, Peter understands the grace that comes from Jesus, the transforming grace that comes through Jesus. Another thing to note about this passage, the churches being written to are churches that are in modern-day Turkey. Peter probably wrote this letter sometime around 62 or 63 A.D., um, and this letter mentions suffering and persecution. Peter was most likely in Rome when he wrote this letter, and the emperor was most likely Nero. And um, if you know a little bit about Nero, Nero uh, probably set fire to Rome in 64 A.D., Rome burned, Nero took it as an opportunity to persecute Christians. Peter probably died as a result of that persecution. Um, and, you know, church tradition has it that Peter was crucified upside down because he didn't deem it, didn't deem himself to be worthy to be crucified in the same way as Christ. And so it appears that as Peter is writing this letter, that persecution, that suffering is on the horizon. It's, it's not quite here yet. But there's a hint of it in the air. It's, it's like when you go to the fair and you're in the parking lot and you smell the vinegar fries. You know what I'm talking about, right? 
There's a hint of it in the air. The persecution is coming. The suffering is coming. It's not quite there yet. And so Peter writes this letter to these churches and he comforts them. But even more so, even more so than he comforts them, he gives them marching orders. About one-third of the verses in the book of Peter have an imperative statement or a command associated with them. About one-third of the verses. So as you read through 1 Peter, you're going to hear over and over imperative statements, commands. And so when suffering is all around us, when persecution is about to show up, what would the temptation be? Peter understands what the temptation would be. The temptation would be to turn inward and to hide and to become self-focused and protective because that's what he did at Jesus' crucifixion. And Peter understands that. And so he takes these suffering people or these people that are about to suffer and be persecuted and he blows them beyond the walls of their suffering. And he gives them a much bigger vision of who they are and a much bigger picture of their identity. He gives them something greater than simply what they're dealing with now. He gives them a vision and a calling for every aspect of their life right from the get-go. The third thing I want you to see about 1 Peter is that this letter, like I said, gets right to the heart of the identity of God's people right away. He doesn't beat around the bush at all. Right out of the Right from the get-go, he calls them elect exiles. 1 Peter 1, to those who are elect exiles. Put another way, he calls them set-apart sojourners. He calls them resident aliens with a mission. Elect exiles. Peter does something in these verses that is a theme throughout this letter. He again and again is going to remind these people of who they are. And so when he gives them imperative statements, when he gives them commands, when he says, go and do these things, it's as a result of who they are to begin with. And I'll get to that in a minute. But he again and again is reminding them of who they are, even as much as he's putting them on mission. Right? As God's people, we get identity amnesia all the time. We just simply forget who we are. And for these Christians, for these people that Peter is writing to, Peter starts right away reminding them that they were chosen and set apart by God to be his people living in a foreign land. You are elect exiles. You're an alien. You're a sojourner. And let me just stop for a second. And if there's anybody that should be able to empathize with the plight of the aliens and the sojourners, and exiles, and people who have to move from their homeland because of some reason, Christians should get it. Or if there's anybody who should be able to, to, to empathize with exiles, it should be Christians. Because that's what we are. Peter reminds them that they were chosen and set apart by God to be his people in a foreign land as exiles. He reminds them that they are children of God. They're citizens of the kingdom of God, not citizens of where they live, citizens of the kingdom of God. They belong to God's kingdom. Now they're living in Pontus and they're living in Galatia and they're living in Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. And we're living in Augusta. But our home, we're citizens of the kingdom of God first and foremost. I don't know if you've thought about this or not, but if you are God's child, you are called 
to cross-cultural living. This world is not, for you, going to be a comfortable place because this world is not your home. You are not intended to be comfortable here on earth because you are called by Jesus to operate by a different set of rules with a different set of values than the place where you live. Your heart is motivated by a different set of motivations because you serve a different king, right? No longer is your goal to set up your own little kingdom and have everything go your way, hoping that you can be sovereign enough to get the things that you want and to be comfortable and to be happy because this isn't your home. You're citizens of another kingdom. You don't belong to this world anymore if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Here's some truth for you. When, when people find out that you're a pastor, they treat you differently. Brent and I were talking about this this week. I actually hate telling people that I'm a pastor because immediately the way I'm treated and the way I'm uh, dealt with is completely different. And it's oftentimes just, it's not real, right? It becomes less than authentic. Several years ago, uh, I was going to this barber. Just quick story, example. Um, my, when it, right, I don't need a barber now. I recognize that, but... Um, I do need to shave my head. I forgot to do that this morning. But uh, anyway, so one of my grandfathers was a barber, and uh, I only knew him for a couple of years. And, uh, and so when, when I started driving myself to a barber, right, instead of my parents doing it, um, I always looked for somebody who was sort of an old-school barber. Like, who's an old-school? This is their trade. This is what they do. They're barbers. And uh, so I heard about this guy out in Martinez, and uh, so I started going to his barber shop. And I got there. And it, it was quite unique. Um, he asked me how I found out about him, and I told him that it was from another guy that I worked with. And um, there were several people there, a couple of barbers in the barbershop. And over the course of my time getting my hair cut that first time, I realized this is really different, right? Because the guy would go into the back, and he would get drinks, like alcoholic beverages for his customers. And so he was bringing people out drinks. They were having conversations that were, like, really colorful conversations, uh, to put it mildly. And so I just realized, okay, this is a different environment than I thought. And I left, and a couple of weeks later, I thought, you know what? It was really weird that first time. I'm going to go back. I'm going to go see what happens when I get into this barbershop. And I walk in, and I sit down, and the guy goes, hey, man, you told me how you found out about me. Who was that guy again? I was like, well, this is a guy named Scott. He works next door. He told me about you. He goes, yeah, Scott told me you were a pastor. And I went, yeah, yeah, I'm part of a church downtown, and I explained uh, downtown church. And um, after that, there were no longer any colorful conversations, right? There was no getting alcohol for people who were customers. The entire environment of the barbershop was different, and I felt pretty awkward, right, because I had stepped into their culture, their environment, and they changed it simply because they heard I was a pastor. I didn't feel like I belonged there any longer. Right? I didn't feel welcome. I no longer felt accepted. I didn't feel like I fed in, fit in, and I didn't go back after that because it was just really awkward from that point forward. Here's the thing to know and to understand as a Christian. You're not going to fit in because you're operating from a different set of standards, a different set of rules. Think about this. You were chosen to have the blessing of being not of this world. 
Paul David Tripp says, you have been honored to no longer fit. You have been blessed to be just a little bit weird. You've been graced to be misunderstood. You have been chosen to do things that in the normal way that the world operates makes no sense whatsoever because you are a part of the kingdom of God. And even though it takes a little getting used to, don't mourn that. You shouldn't hide that. You shouldn't wish that you fit more. This cross-cultural existence is a sure sign of the fact that transforming grace has been given to you through Christ just like it was given to Peter. It's a wonderful thing. It's a good thing that your heart grieves where other people's hearts don't grieve. It's a good thing that your heart rejoices at places where other people's hearts don't rejoice. It's a wonderful thing that what's important to you is different than what's important to people who don't know Christ. It's not easy to be set apart. It's not easy to be an alien. It's not easy to be an exile. But it's your calling. And it's a good thing. It's a great thing. It's your calling. I want you to see as well in this passage in verse 2 that there's a progression towards obedience. Um, Verse 2 really uh, modifies the term elect exiles in verse 1. So when you read verse 2, it's really a modification of the word elect exiles in verse 1. It's um, what's happening in verse 2, I think, is that Peter is defining and describing what it means to be an elect exile. Um, And so if we were to read verse 2 again, it says, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So right in this this verse, we go from foreknowledge by God to sanctification by the Holy Spirit to obedience for the blood of Christ. Foreknowledge, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Right, there's a Trinitarian focus in that passage. God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son. And and just as importantly, there's a progression towards obedience that we see, right? Elect exiles, you are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Think of it this way. God placed his love on you before the foundations of the world were set into the place, right? You have a Father who knows you and knows everything about you. Peter is saying that to the elect exiles that he's writing to, and I'm saying that to you. You have a father who set you apart for his purposes, not because you're worthy to be set apart, but because God chose to set you apart as his own. So part of our identity is that our father set us apart. We belong to him. Part of our identity is that God gets to identify, first and foremost, who we are because he set us apart as his own. And right, that should be incredibly humbling. That, that should be incredibly humbling. It, there should be no pride in that. The fact that God set us apart as his children. But according to Peter, he did. He says, elect exiles in the sanctification of the spirit. Right, so God chose to set us apart of his, as, as his own. And now God is transforming us through the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, The power of sin in our lives is absolutely broken by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but sin still remains, right? 
we still sin on a daily basis. We all have evidence of that over the past week. I think we all can agree with that. We all have evidence that sin still exists. Sin still remains. And so is our identity, though, one of somebody who just sins all the time? Or is our identity of one that is being sanctified by the Holy Spirit and made to be like Christ? Paul says in Galatians 5 that the Spirit battles with your sinful nature, that there is a warrior spirit battling on your behalf. So so part of our identity is that the Holy Spirit is transforming us into Christ-likeness as we abide in Christ. That's, That's part of our identity. You're an elect exile because God set you apart. You're an elect exile because you're being transformed through the power of the Holy Spirit as you abide in Christ. You're an elect exile for obedience to Jesus Christ and four sprinkling with his blood. So, so I think what, what, what Peter is saying here is that our identity leads to obedience. We belong to God. We're set apart by God. Therefore, we obey because of the sacrifice of God on our behalf where we were set apart as God's own. Uh, when I was in seminary, I had this, um, this older professor from Mississippi. His name was Dr. Jimmy Dukes. And uh, he had, like, the deepest southern drawl that you could possibly imagine. And so we had this just a, just a, just, whatever, that word, you know what word I'm trying to say, of this guy teaching us Greek who had this incredible Mississippi drawl. And we would just sit there and listen to him for, like, 40 or 45 minutes, and it would be so terrible and so boring and we were just waiting for him to get done. And like the last five minutes of every lecture was incredible. But it took like 45 minutes to get there. And I remember the very first lecture that I sat through, 45 minutes of, oh my gosh, when is this going to end? And then he got to the end and he said, this is what you need to understand about the Christian life. Being precedes doing. And I remember sitting up in my chair like, whoa, that's incredible. How have I gone my whole life without understanding that concept? Being precedes doing. Identity leads to action. It it blew me away. Brent put it this way. Brent's out there somewhere. Um, Brent and I were talking this week. There he is over there. Brent and I were talking this week as as I was talking about the sermon and preparing for it and said it's like a branch on a grapevine, right? The, The branch on the grapevine bears fruit because of what it abides on. It abides on the vine, and therefore it bears fruit. It doesn't do anything to bear fruit. There's nothing it can do but abide in the vine. Because of what it is, it produces fruit. And so Peter says, you're an elect exile. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're an elect exile. You've been set apart by God. You're being changed by the Holy Spirit so that you can obey because of the blood of Christ, right? Being precedes doing. Identity leads to something. It leads to action, to obedience. But there's absolutely no point in that action. That action is hollow without the belonging to Christ first, without the sprinkling of Christ's blood on your behalf. You guys with me? Everybody paying attention? Okay. By the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we stand before God as righteous with a new identity of being righteous in the sight of God, because of the work of Christ. And because of the presence of sin, we are people who are daily in the need of forgiveness. But what a wonderful hope it is that no matter how deep my struggle, no matter how great my failure, 
no matter how strong my weakness is, there is forgiveness and there is cleansing. I don't have to run in fear from God because of the sprinkling of Christ on my behalf that makes me have a new identity. I don't have to run in fear from God's presence. I can run to God. I I can run toward him and not away from him and receive his forgiveness and his cleansing, right? And so are you running? Are you hiding? Are you hiding in guilt? Are you hiding in shame? Are you running away from the only place of true forgiveness and true deliverance and true cleansing? Right, right. Think about this identity. Just think about the identity. I have been chosen to be part of the operation of this kingdom that is not of this world. I and the son are daughter of a father who knows me because he's written my story. I am the object of his perseverant, unyielding, transforming grace. And he will not relent until the work is done for me to be changed into Christ likeness. I have been chosen to be part of something bigger than the small borders of my own life and the only, only way that I identify myself. I, I have been set apart for something bigger to submit everything I am and everything I have to the Lordship of Christ. I've been blessed with continual forgiveness and daily cleansing. I've been blessed to be an elect exile. I've been blessed to be part of something way bigger than my own little life. Right? If, if we think about the environment that Peter wrote this into, I, I mentioned a minute ago, there's suffering, there's persecution on the horizon. It's in the air. It's not there yet. It's in the air. It's, it's no secret that the early church was persecuted. It's no secret that the first Christians lived within a hostile environment. The, the early uh, church lived... Uh, in a Roman Empire that was incredibly hostile. And early on, Christians were persecuted and suffered dearly for their faith. Peter is an example of that. He, he died at the hands of a Roman emperor. The early Roman Empire was hostile to Christians. So the question remains, why would anyone in the first century want to be a Christian? Why? Because there's enormous social costs for being a Christian. It could cost you your job, your home, your family, your social status, your life. And these early Christians in this incredibly hostile environment were exiles. They were set apart. And I think they actually embraced it. I think they actually embraced the fact that they were different. When Peter wrote, may grace and peace be multiplied to you, at the end of verse 2, it's because they needed that grace. They needed that peace because they were strangers. They were sojourners. They were different, and the world was hostile. Those early Christians were part of a unique social project that offended people and attracted people at the same time because of their identity. Right? Those early Christians, they forbade uh, early forms of abortion and the practice of infant exposure in which unwanted infants were simply thrown out. It's perfectly acceptable in that culture. 
for certain children to just be thrown out. And instead of letting those infants die, the early church was known to actually take care of them, to actually adopt them and take care of them. Christians were a, a sexual counterculture in that they abstained from sex outside of heterosexual marriage, right? And that's in the midst of a culture that they came from, that especially for married men, sex with prostitutes and slaves and children was perfectly okay. And they were different. Christians were unusually generous with their money, particularly to the poor and needy, and not just to their own family and their own racial group. It wasn't that Caesar was caring for the poor, it's that the early church was. Christian communities were multi-ethnic since their common identity in Christ was more fundamental than their racial, ethnic, or national identities, and they created a multi-ethnic diversity which was unprecedented at the time. Christians believed in non-retaliation. As they were persecuted for their faith, they forgave their enemies, and they willingly died. Willingly died. And it's into that cultural context of suffering, racial divisions, sexual immorality, the devaluing of human life, poverty, and violence that Peter writes a letter to the churches in modern-day Turkey. Does that cultural context sound familiar to you guys? Let me read those things again. Suffering, racial divisions, sexual immorality, the devaluing of human life, poverty, and violence. That sounds to me like modern-day America. Peter writes a letter to the elect exiles of Turkey. And the things he writes... To those elect exiles are so relevant to us in this room in Augusta, Georgia today that it's almost, it's almost unfathomable how relevant it is. Not, not that we need to make it relevant, it is. It's into this context that Peter writes this letter and simply says, you are an elect exile. You are set apart by God to live in a place that is not your home. Because the New Testament says that our citizenship is ultimately in heaven. Your primary citizenship as a follower of Jesus Christ is to God. It's not to the nation that you were born in. Your primary citizenship is in heaven. You, as an elect exile, are to value things and ideas and people that your culture doesn't. You are to live in a way that's different from your culture, where your culture needs to be redeemed and where your culture is wrong. You are to be motivated by things that make no sense to your culture. You are actually supposed to embrace the idea that you are a foreigner and life is going to be difficult because you are an elect exile. That's what Peter says to these people. You are set apart by God. In a culture that is terrible and that needs to be redeemed, you are set apart in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. You are set apart in Augusta, Georgia, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you. May you be who you are, an elect 
exile, a sojourner, set apart from this world, set apart to God to go back into the darkness so that grace and peace might be multiplied to those who don't know Jesus yet. Amen? You are to be who you are, an elect exile. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it is my hope and it is my prayer that you will embrace the idea, embrace the biblical truth that needs to infiltrate our church so deeply that it impacts our whole society and culture, that you are set apart by God for a purpose. Part of that purpose is to go back out into the darkness so that grace and peace may be extended to those who don't yet have grace and peace. Here at Redemption Church, we say that we exist to lead people to Jesus, to lead people to Jesus. We exist to make disciples who make disciples. First Peter reminds us, verses 1 and 2, that we have been set apart as elect exiles. That's our identity. We're going to get to what that means for us as a group of people in Augusta, Georgia at Redemption Church. We're going to talk more about that in the weeks and months to come. But part of what that means is that grace and peace has been extended to you through Jesus, and now we have a responsibility to steward that grace and peace as elect exiles in a culture that desperately needs the truth of Jesus. We're going to move into a time of response like we do every Sunday here at Redemption. Over the course of our time of response, uh, several things are going to happen. Um, The band's going to come back up in just a second and lead us in some songs. We're going to have the opportunity to worship by singing. Uh, During this time, there's an opportunity for you to worship by giving. There's a giving basket in the back where you can put your tithes um, and offering. We're going to have the opportunity to respond by sitting right where we are and reflecting on what the Holy Spirit is doing in our hearts and minds this morning. Uh, When I prayed, I sincerely prayed that Christ would be lifted high and that we would be drawn to Jesus because of that. And and as, as we're drawn to Jesus now, if you need to sit and deal with some things, that I would encourage you to do that. During this time as well, we're going to have an opportunity to take communion. Uh, We do this every Sunday, and here's the reason we take communion every Sunday. Uh, It's because it's a visible way for us to remember what Christ has done for us and to proclaim that we believe it. As we come down the middle aisle and tear off the bread and dip it in the wine or juice, we're remembering the body of Christ that was broken for us, We're remembering the blood of Christ that was shed for us, and we're proclaiming to one another that we believe the gospel and that Jesus has done something for us. And so if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, whether you're a part of this church or not, we invite you to come and take communion if God gives you the freedom to do so in order to remember what Christ has done and proclaim that we believe the gospel. So I'm going to pray for us, and we'll move on um, with those things. Holy Father, uh, thank you for your son, Jesus, thank you for his death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf. Thank you for the grace and peace that's offered to us through Jesus. Thank you that we can be right before you with a new identity, a a righteous identity, able to stand before you in boldness because of the work of Christ. God, even now as we continue to respond, as we continue to worship, I pray that you would be at work in our hearts and minds, drawing us to you. You might be glorified. 
God, we ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.